0: I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to Cross Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past with our country's leading historians and thought leaders. Today, I'm cross examining Evan Thomas, author of the bestseller First, Sandra Day O'Connor, an intimate portrait of the first woman Supreme Court justice. That book just came out on March 19, 2019 and we did the program sponsored by the Shackelford Law Firm, SMU's Cox School of Business, and Bank of Texas in front of a live audience in Dallas on March the 28th. Enjoy. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about this book. Uh, Because it's been a long time since I've been this excited about a book. Uh, When I read it, I said, this is the most interesting life since uh, reading about Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or Theodore Roosevelt. My new hero in life is Sandra Day O'Connor. And it's because Evan has done something magical. Evan, why don't I let you say in your own words how this book came to be?
1: Talmadge is my greatest promoter. (laughs) Also, my friend. Uh, this book, uh, Sandra O'Connor wrote a book called The Lazy Bee about 20 years ago, a wonderful memoir growing up on the ranch. And of course, her publisher wanted her to do her full memoir, and there was some talk about it. I actually was brought in briefly to maybe be the ghostwriter on it. I could tell <clears> that she didn't really want to do it. Uh, she wanted to have a legacy, but she didn't really want to tell her own story. In any case, she got Alzheimer's, she got dementia. And so the family decided to uh, uh, making a biography and I was brought in her son uh, Scott went to Bohemian Grove I'm sure some of you know what Bohemian Grove is and uh, ran into Chris Buckley and started working down the list of historians and got to my name and Chris Buckley said stop there so uh, Scott told me this and I wrote Chris Buckley and thanking him for this and Chris Buckley sent me back a short email that said you only 10% <laughs>
0: That's that's how the book got done. Well, importantly, uh, not only did the O'Connor family turn over all of Sandra Day O'Connor's files and her husband's files and his journal, but also provided introductions to everybody on the Supreme Court. Evan interviewed almost every Supreme Court justice she served with who's still alive. uh, uh, Provided introductions to to all of her law clerks over the years. So there's over 300 interviews that, that went into this book. Uh, in addition to some some really amazing papers with information never revealed before, which, which we'll get into later. So Evan, uh, former top uh, correspondent and, and uh, editor at both Time Magazine and then Newsweek, he's had several uh, New York Times uh, best-selling biographies. And the good news is yesterday afternoon, first week, this book opened at number 10 on the bestseller list of the New York Times. So that's, that's quite an achievement. We're we're delighted that this book is having this success. How much sold half of them? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Evan, let's let's begin at the beginning. Uh, you talk about the Lazy Bee. That was the name of the ranch that Sandra Day O'Connor grew up on. Several thousand acres in both New Mexico and. One hundred and
1: sixty thousand acres.
0: One hundred and sixty thousand acres. It's in two states, New Mexico and Arizona, and it was run by her father who early on treated her like a totally self-reliant adult. He shaped her inner core more than any other person in her life. So explain the dynamics of the father-daughter relationship. Well, it could best be told
1: by a story, Sandra's 15-year-old girl, and her job was to make lunch for the roundup. So she gets up at 5 o'clock, she makes the roast, she makes the cake, she gets in the truck, she learned how to drive a truck when she was 10. And uh, out she goes, and she has a flat tire. She's a pretty small girl, and she has to jump on the jack to change the tire. She gets there. She's an hour late. Her father says to her, you're late. She said, Dad, I had a flat tire. He said, next time, leave earlier. That's life on that ranch. That was a, she told that story to her law
0: clerks. The message was pretty clear. No excuses. <laughs> now... Uh, While she, of course, she uh, grew up, actually, she was born in El Paso, and because her parents wanted, they were out in the middle of nowhere on this ranch, they sent her to school in El Paso, which I don't think has ever been known for its great public schools. She skipped two grades, and at age 16, she started Stanford. And uh, Stanford really opened her eyes to to a whole new world. So, so talk about that undergraduate experience and how the light bulb went on in so many ways while she was at Stanford undergrad. She took a course as a freshman called Western Civilization. They don't teach it
1: anymore because it's considered to be too triumphal for the West. Go, go figure. Uh, but it had an incredible impact on her. Uh, I read her final exam written when she was 17 years old. It's an exegesis on Madison and, and Jefferson, and it gave her this profound understanding of the rule of law, but also a deep belief in it as as a young girl that carried her the rest of her life.
0: Well, while she was at Stanford, uh, she was uh, one of the uh, most appealing and attractive women on the campus, and she she attracted men all the time and had uh, actually uh, had four different marriage proposals. That that I I know of. That, That Devin knows of. But anyway, uh, kind of the ultimate test was when she had a boyfriend, she would bring them home to the ranch to meet her father. So Evan, talk about what happened during some of those visits. Well, one of the boyfriends was Bill
1: Rehnquist. Later, uh, he was number one in the class, but she was maybe number three. And so uh, he fell for her first year, and she brought him home. And Dad uh, handed Bill Rehnquist a roasted bull's testicle for <laughs> records. Uh, I, I the weekend did not go well. <laughs> uh, she dumped him when they got back. Uh, but he decided that he was still in love. And uh, uh, he left Stanford Law School early to go become a clerk for Justice Jackson of the US Supreme Court. And when he got to Washington, uh, he decided that he was uh, in love and started writing love letters to. Sandy Day, as she was then known. Uh, there's a little story behind this. O.C. and I uh, knew that there were love letters between John and Sandra. Her husband. But we couldn't find them. They weren't in her papers at the Library of Congress, which we had access to. So we were over in a chambers in the Supreme Court, and Sandra's secretary took us down to a storage locker down in the basement, and there was a box marked correspondence. And we said, what's that? And inside, there were love letters between John and Sandra, which was great, but also 14 love letters from Bill Rehnquist to Sandra. About along about love letter number seven, it said, will you marry me, Sandy? Whoa. Uh, they had never told anybody. They had never told their own families this. Now, it's all a happy ending. She said no. She was already in love with John O'Connor at the time, although she did string him along for a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she ended up marrying John. Uh, he married uh, a wonderful woman named Nan, who he loved, so it all worked out uh, perfectly, happy. But, but, but they never told anybody, and I, and I think when they got to the Supreme Court, they were a little embarrassed to reveal this. The other justices knew that they had gone out. The, the story they put out was we went to a couple of movies together, and when Justice uh, uh, Harry Blackman was sitting, who sat next to Justice Rehnquist on the bench, when Sandra came on the bench, Uh, Blackman turned to Rehnquist and he said,
0: Now, no fooling around. (laughs) Sandra Day O'Connor graduated from Stanford Law School at age 22. Uh, She was in the top 10% of her class, order the course, and she couldn't get a job. The the law firms wouldn't uh, interview her. And so uh, she wrote 40 law firms. She wrote 40 law firms. This was 1952, just to show you how far the country's come. But there's an interesting trajectory over her career between the uh, very prominent now international firm of Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. So Evan, talk about that trajectory, the low point and the high point. Well, one firm
1: one firm out of, all the, out of the 40 in Los Angeles and San Francisco did offer her an interview to be a legal secretary. And the question was, how well do you type? Her answer was so-so. Didn't get the job. So flash forward 30 years. The Attorney General of the United States is William French Smith, a former partner at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. He is calling Sandra Day O'Connor to ask her to come back to Washington to talk to President Reagan about a job as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. He comes on the phone, she gets on the phone, and she says to him, You wouldn't be calling me about secretarial work, would
0: you? (laughs) Now, one of the unsung heroes in her life, and therefore in your book, is her husband John, who was a colleague at Stanford Law School, and he was very different from the father who she hero-worshipped, and they raised three very high-powered, accomplished sons. But what were John's most important strengths that made him the perfect husband to Sandra Day O'Connor?
1: Well, he's, he's interesting because he is a traditional male. He's the head of the Rotary. He's the big man in Phoenix. He's the managing partner of, the, of the, one of the two big law firms. Uh, he loves going to Bohemian Grove. He's a guy. But he is an incredibly supportive husband uh, and a loving husband. And they were a partnership. Uh, he was politically ambitious for her. Actually, she was politically ambitious for him. They were kind of worked together to work up in the Republican ranks in Phoenix and uh, he, he was, he had a big personality, he was a big storyteller, he loved to dance, but he was never overbearing with her. And uh, uh, it was a partnership, a true partnership. And of course, when it was time for her to go to Washington, that was a sacrifice for him. And she, and he, she said, you know, we're going she said, you know, this is gonna change everything. And he said, we have to do it. And it did change everything for him, Uh, His law career was not as good in Washington. It it was a bad fit. Uh, And he was a little sad at times. But this interested me about her and the the nature of the relationship. She was known in Washington as being very social. She was probably the most social Supreme Court justice ever. I guess that's not saying much. (laughs) But she went out a lot. And they went dancing and so forth. And yes, she liked that. She liked to dance and she liked to have a drink. And, and uh, but she told me, you know, I really, I really would have rather have been home reading. She had to read about a thousand pages a day, especially in the early years when she's catching. Does yeah, anybody up. want to
0: be a Supreme Court justice? You got to read a thousand pages a day.
1: She, she read, read them damn. Fast. I'm not sure they all do, but, but she uh, and and but she went out because she understood that it, for him it was a chance to shine. When they were at <coughs> dinner, you know, she would say, John, tell us a story. The same story she'd heard a thousand times. And she'd have a big belly laugh and, and mean it, but she knew it was a chance for him to shine. When they went dancing, people would stop and watch them, and it was a chance, chance for him. And she said to me, you know, it, it was not easy being the husband of me. And it wasn't in a way, but she was very sensitive to that. Now the story ends, Tragically, some of you know this story. He got Alzheimer's. And uh, she cared for him for him as long as she could. She took him to her chambers. Uh, he would sleep on the bench in the, in the front office. Uh, finally, it was just too much, and she resigned the United States Supreme Court to take care of him. She said, I, he sacrificed for me, now I'm going to sacrifice for him. She was still going strong in the court. It was called the O'Connor <coughs> Court by a lot of journalists. They get back to Phoenix and within six months he doesn't recognize her. He's in a home. And the story gets worse because he, and all, this is not uncommon in Alzheimer's, he forms what's known as a mistaken attachment. He, he, he has a girlfriend whose name was Kay. So she would come in and, you know, publicly she said she was happy for him because he had been depressed and now he was happy. But, you know, privately her heart is broken. But she would come in, and he'd be holding hands with Kay, and she would sit down and hold his other hand.
0: Wow. Now, talking about uh, the nature of her personality and why she was as accomplished as she was, you say that in both in her politics, she was a state senator in Arizona, became the majority leader, as well as a justice on the Supreme Court. She was driven by a mix of realism and idealism. That is, she was a principled pragmatist. And that was really the key to her success, both politically and uh, as a a justice on the Supreme Court. Talk about how being a political pragmatist, particularly on the Supreme Court, caused her to keep being able to build majorities when nobody else was being proactive about how we're gonna get to five.
1: She was the fifth deciding vote 330 times in 25 years. That's a lot of power, Uh, particularly on big cases, you know, the the big ones before the court in her time, still, abortion rights and affirmative action. She was a decisive vote on both of those. Uh, I'll give you one example to show how she she did her stuff. She, in her hearings, uh, confirmation hearings, said that she found abortion personally abhorrent, but that didn't mean that she was willing to tell other women whether to have an abortion or not. She was torn about this. Uh, She knew, you know, Supreme Court justices don't read the opinion polls, but she knew perfectly well that in this country about a third of people are against abortion no matter what, about a third are for an abortion no matter what, and the other third are in the middle somewhere. Abortion's okay under some circumstances. That's pretty much where she was. And, uh, but, when she comes on the court, there's a feeling she's a Reagan appointee. Harry Blackman, the author of Roe v. Wade, thinks she's gonna be the fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, to, to end abortion rights. She's not. And the way she did this is, is, is revealing of how she operates. By 1991, 92, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, her old boyfriend, thinks he's finally got five votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, because uh, Justice uh, Kennedy's come on the court, Justice Scalia, Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and he hey, we're finally at five. We're gonna overturn Roe, and in the conference, there are actually five votes to overturn Roe, including Kennedy, but Sandra has incredible emotional intelligence, and she sees that Kennedy, who has been a pal of Scalia, and voting with him, and Kennedy's actually said in conference that he thinks Roe v. Wade is the equivalent of Dred Scott. I mean, he sounds like a sure it vote. It doesn't vote. get any worse than that. You know, sure vote. She is lying back here. And she sees that Scalia's been condescending to Kennedy. And that Kennedy's a guy who really cares about respect. And she is respectful with Kennedy. She also has befriended Justice Souter, uh, partly by trying to get him dates,
0: <laughs> which she didn't want.
1: Anyway, she got him a date once, and he, at the end of the day, he said to the woman, this, I had a wonderful time, let's do this again next year. <laughs> uh, so she kind of despaired the dates for it, But she did, but she knew, she knew that Souter really cared about precedent and he cared about stare decisis. So she forms this little coalition known as the Troika secretly. Souter, Kennedy, and O'Connor. All of a sudden, Rehnquist has lost his five, and now there are five votes to preserve abortion rights. She has Souter right, the part of the opinion. It's sort kind of a dog's breakfast of an opinion, but that's how you make compromise. He wrote the president part. Kennedy sort of did this big philosophical thing about the jurisprudence of that kind of stuff that she hated—big kind of rhetorical flights. But okay, Kennedy, you write that part. Uh, she got Justice Stevens to help him, help her organize it, and then she wrote the nuts and bolts part, the practical part, which said that yeah, abortion rights you can have them, but the state can impose limits as long as it's not an undue burden. On the woman. That's a fuzzy standard. The purists hate it. It's constantly getting relitigated. But that's very Sandra O'Connor, very practical. We were gonna do this one case at a time. And it worked. That's there was the Casey case, it preserves abortion rights. That's still the law of the land. It may get overturned in coming years because the court is continuing to get ideologically pure uh, justices. But for 25 years, she preserved abortion rights, even though She was personally against abortion.
0: Now she, as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a woman who had an amazing rise. When she was in Phoenix, she was the president of the Junior League while her husband's the the head of the Rotary. They were the dynamic duo socially and civically. Then she became an assistant uh, state attorney general in Arizona. She then became a state senator and became the majority leader. She then decided she wanted to be a judge. She started out as an Arizona trial judge, then she became an appellate, an Arizona appellate justice, and then of course, United States Supreme Court justice. So as we read about this amazing rise, you say her ambition was palpable, that larger stages beckoned, and that she had a sense that she was destined for more than wealth and social success. And believed she had the power to influence her own destiny. Having said all that, would it be accurate to say that she truly believed that she was indomitable?
1: Well, she was a humble. Humble indomitable? <laughs> she was.
0: <a> <laughs>
1: the great people are really complicated. She was a humble, super confident person. She was a confident, humble person. I can't quite disentangle those two things, but they're both there, and you can find them in her character. She was smart enough not to stick her neck too much up at, uh, at times, and at other times, she was right out there out front. She knew when to pick her shots. Uh, this is pretty particularly important for her as a woman in a man's world, knowing when to, to, to fight and when not to. She, she learned a lot watching her father. Talmud talked about the lessons of the ranch and self-reliance, and that was really, really important. But there was another lesson. She watched her dad have a couple of drinks at night and bully her mom. And she watched the way her mom handled it, not by being passive, not by being a victim, not by kind of rolling over, by deflecting, keeping her dignity, being graceful. Uh, her mom was at the dusty ranch, always wore a dress, always wore a hose, subscribed to Vogue, always was a lady in a world that was not ladylike and just carried herself that way. That was a lesson for Sandra. So that when the men started misbehaving around her, which happened all the time in the Arizona Senate where they were drinking a lot, she picked her shots. You know, she had a certain look when they hit on her that just said, back off fella. And they did. Uh, There's one guy, sometimes she had to resort to sterner measures. Uh, There was a fellow named Tom Goodwin, who was the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. She had to deal with him all the time because of the budget. He was a drunk a drunk by 10 a.m. drunk and she finally called him out on his drinking and he said to her, if you were a man, I'd punch you in the nose. And she said to him, if you were a man, you could. (laughs) She didn't do that kind of thing much. You get to do that once. But she she would pick her shots. Other times she would walk away. She was not impervious. One of her aides told me that they... She found her, Sandra, in the bathroom crying. You know, she she was vulnerable, but she wasn't crying in public. And uh, and I, I sort of I, I when I first met her, when Elsie and I first met her, uh, she was pretty steely, and uh, she didn't she didn't really trust wisely did not trust journalists like me, uh, and so I found her formidable. But I noticed when we started reading about her that she wept, uh, wept a. Funeral, funeral, I mean appropriately, but she was not emotionally repressed at all. Uh, we have a picture of, of her in the book crying at Justice Rehnquist's funeral. She's not just crying, she's bawling. And I, that told me something about her. You know, she was totally in touch with her emotions. She just knew how to control. And uh, uh, you know, it gave her a strength. You don't get strength just from being stoical. You get strength from you know, knowing how you feel and then dealing with those feelings. She had unbelievable intellectual intelligence, obviously, but also great emotional intelligence.
0: Now, one of the many fascinating parts of this book is the relationship she had with her fellow Supreme Court justices. So I'm just going to mention a few names, and then, Evan, you talk about what her experience with those people was like. Harry Blackman, the author of Roe v. Wade.
1: The right before she came on the Supreme Court, the justices voted whether to take the word Mr. off before justice. They were Mr. Justice. They, the vote was 8 to 1 to get rid of Mr. They knew women were coming. The one vote was Harry Black. He was very, he was kind of a cranky guy. Even though he wrote Roe v. Wade, the great symbol of women's rights, uh, he really didn't write it for women. He wrote it for doctors who were getting sued. Uh, he had been a general counsel of the Mayo Clinic. And uh, he was very wary of her... Justice O'Connor as as a vote who was going to take away Roe v. Wade, and he treated her skeptically and warily and wrote nastily in his dissents about her, which she did not appreciate. She tried. She did not respond in kind. When her clerks would write in nasty things about Justice Blackmun in their drafts of her dissents, she'd take it out. Uh, She tried. She She said to one of her clerks, I even went to his damn prayer breakfast. Uh, But it it just was a relationship that was not going to happen, and and, and it never did. They never got got close.
0: Mm -hmm. Thurgood Marshall.
1: Justice O'Connor knew very few African Americans growing up in Arizona. Obviously, a lot of Hispanics, but not many Africans. Phoenix is almost all white or Hispanic. The first African American that she really got to know was Thurgood Marshall, Mm -hmm. the greatest African American lawyer, you know, certainly of his time, the guy who argued, uh, Brown v. Board of Education, magnificent man, and she, and Justice Marshall when in conference, when the other justices are talking points of law, Marshall liked to tell stories about what it was like to be a black lawyer in the South in the 1930s and 40s, you know, one step ahead of a guy with a shotgun. And uh, uh, O'Connor bonded with, O'Connor was somebody who actually listened This is important. Uh, O'Connor is a bustling, sociable person, but you watched her. When she was listening to somebody, her whole body would get still. She was really listening. And she really listened to Thurgood Marshall. And he became her tutor on what it's like to be black. Heck of a tutor to have, but that's how it worked. And uh, I noticed, Elsie uh, and I found a piece of paper on, on his funeral program. Uh, she had written in longhand on the cover of the program what, uh, what Thurgood had said to her. Uh, people were talking about, well, you've got to be this, you've got to be that, and Thurgood said, i only gotta be, I only got to do two things, die and be black. She wrote that on the cover of, of the program. I mean, that's, that was her you know, relating to him even in death.
0: But when he announced his resignation from the court,
1: well, she wept. She 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 wept. Uh, uh, And he also he came to her once. This is interesting. He said he he didn't uh, he did not really have a happy time on the Supreme Court. He was a little bored. He watched daytime TV in his chambers. Uh, And uh, and, uh, he came to Justice O'Connor and he said, "I'm really down. I'm I'm just feeling my life isn't worth anything." And because I'm really not doing much here. And she said, oh, Clarence, oh, Thurgood, come on. If you had never come to the Supreme Court, you would have done much more than any of us here. You have changed history. And it, it bucked him up. You know, it made him it made him feel
0: better. Lewis Powell.
1: Lewis Powell was the true gentleman who actually, in the conference, would pull out her chair and open the door for her. Uh, and, and, you know, she's, up, I guess, a proto-feminist, but she really liked that. Uh, they were, they, they, they split on some cases, but he also, she got to the court, she had no idea how the place worked, and he was the one who took care to make sure that she did. Her old beau, Rehnquist, was weirdly standoffish and did not help her. But Lewis Powell got her the most important thing he could do, he got her a secretary who knew what she was doing, and, and that, that made a, made a huge difference. Uh, I know. I remember, this, this is interesting, she crossed Justice Powell on the case at the end of the first term, and uh, he, she was so upset about
0: it, she wept, uh, and they hugged, this is very, very un-Supreme Court, they hugged and made up. Yeah, and when he announced his resignation, that, that scene? That, yeah. yeah. Uh, He was being a little awkward and he said, Oh, Sandra,
1: you and I should have run off, left our spouses and run off together. And he kind of looked up and there the two spouses standing. (laughs) (laughs) Antonin Scalia. Uh, She really welcomed Scalia at first because the court was getting kind of old and tired in the late 80s. And uh, uh, Harry Blackman, those folks were, were not too lively. And Scalia was super lively and super smart was an intellectual breath of fresh air, but she changed her opinion because Scalia suffered from uh, something we have all know about the smartest kid in the room syndrome. And with his brethren, his new brethren, he was uh, condescending. I mean, he would send out these little memos, Nino grams, correcting their grammar. and This was not totally appreciated.
0: And he was, uh, uh,
1: he would write these dissents that were harsh. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote about uh, Justice O'Connor's uh, opinion in an abortion case. this can, She cannot be taken seriously. Yeah. You, know, you don't write that about a fellow justice. And she did not like that. And again, she didn't publicly take the bait. She never, in her sense, she never went after Scalia. But uh, she was not fond of him. And uh, it showed in a small way. Scalia made the mistake of asking her to play tennis. Doubles. and. Uh, she was a pretty good tennis player, and she drilled him at the net repeatedly. <laughs> and uh, when it was over, he, he turned to his partner, her friend, Bill Haley, and said, We're never doing that again.
0: <laughs> Ruth, Ruth Bader
1: Ginsburg. Uh, justice Ginsburg, O'Connor welcomed her. This is 12 years. O'Connor had been justice for 12 years when... Ginsburg finally comes. The first bit of good news was they finally put a ladies' room in next to the conference room. Uh, she had had, been, had to walk down the hall and use somebody else's bathroom for the prior 12 years. Uh, she was glad to have an ally on the court. Uh, they were allies in many ways, but they were not personally close. They were not cozy. Uh, Justice Ginsburg told O.C. and me that uh, not once did Justice O'Connor come to her chambers to talk about a case. Uh, they were, they were different types. Justice Ginsburg did not come to Justice O'Connor's aerobics class at 8 a.m. because Justice Ginsburg is a night person. Uh, my favorite story about them is Justice O'Connor's messenger uh, told us that uh, in the Supreme Court garage where they parked down there, Justice Ginsburg uh, ran Justice O'Connor's car twice. The first time was a hit and run. <laughs> and uh so we were also oh, you know went to see Justice Ginsburg and we were waiting we saved this question for last uh you know Justice Ginsburg did you really run into Justice O'Connor's car she said oh yes she said I've never driven again uh she said I was trying to avoid hitting Justice Scalia's car <laughs> uh she uh, uh it's actually it was true uh, Justice O'Connor would get the after that get the the, uh, the uh, guards down there to park Justice for his car. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Last but not least, Clarence Thomas.
1: Uh, Clarence Thomas is such an interesting character. When he arrived at the court after the, the Anita Hill hearings, it was just unbelievably harsh, rough. And Justice Thomas told me, he said, I, I felt hammered and lonely and uh, uh, aloof. And so at the end of the first conference, he's walking along back to his chambers, and Justice O'Connor falls in step with him and said, uh, those hearings were really damaging. And he doesn't know what to say. I mean, damaging to him personally, yes, damaging to the court. So he says nothing. And she says nothing. And the next day, she walks to him again and said, Clarence, you, you should come to lunch. And he doesn't. He's, he's feeling alone. She keeps walking with him, saying, Clarence, you've got to come to lunch. Clarence, you've got to come to lunch. Finally, he says, yes, ma'am. And he says it changed everything for him because he joined the group. Uh, Clarence Thomas has a big laugh. He's a really charming, funny guy. He came out of his tent and joined the group. And she's, Clarence Thomas said to me, she was the glue. By actually a simple thing, this coming to lunch thing sounds kind of obvious, but it's not a small thing. Uh, When when Justice O'Connor came on the court, she went to her first lunch, only four other justices showed up. Half the justices weren't there. Why? Well, the Brethren had just come out, uh, uh, Scott Armstrong and Bob Woodward's book, expose in the Supreme Court, and the justices weren't sure who the leaker was. They didn't trust each other. You know, they're not necessarily friends. They're they're there for life, but they don't have to like each other. And there have been some famous, you know, history has shown some famous... uh, times when they didn't get along. So they're wary. They communicate mostly by memo. They don't hang out together. In conference, they don't debate. They give their vote, and they give their reasoning, and then they move on. They argue by memo. And she thought it was important for them to come to lunch. So she would show up in the chambers of a justice and just sit there until the justice came to lunch. And by the 90s, she had every single justice coming to lunch. And the court really had its most collegial period in the 90s when they were all coming to lunch together. That stopped, actually.
0: And uh, when you interviewed Clarence Thomas, how did he describe her role on the court?
1: Well, he said that, that you know, he, he's a very uh, doctrinaire ideological person, so you would think he would not get along with her because she's very practical, case-by-case. Uh, case. You, know, you know, this debate between rules and standards. She, he was a rules guy. She's a standards person. But he he loved her because because he said she was the glue. She was what what brought us us together.
0: Yeah. Now, although she was never what would be uh, described as a militant feminist, you describe her as a cautious crusader who slowly gained ground for women and in her own way became a real champion for women's rights. But because of her un-militant approach, do you think she's ever going to get credit for what she did for her gender?
1: Well, I hope so. She's not an activist. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is getting a lot of credit. She deserves it. There are a couple of good movies. You should see them. They're, they're, they're both good. Uh, and, but that's what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. ACLU lawyer brought gender rights cases, So that is her legacy, and, and properly so. Justice O'Connor operated, flew below the radar. But one thing, in politics in Arizona... She used to say, this is gonna gonna sound odd, It requires a little context. You remember in the 19, when women's, remember Women's Lip, it was called. Uh, There was this whole thing about being a bra burner. Uh, So she would come to political audiences and say, I come to you wearing my my wedding ring and my bra. (laughs) It's kind of of a statement that makes you squirm today. But in 1970, she's making the point that I'm not some crazy women's liver you know I'm a regular country club you know she didn't even junior wear pantsuits president of the junior league so she's sending the message to the men who might otherwise be a little wary of her I'm you know I'm, it's okay <laughs> meanwhile and this is another she introduces the equal rights amendment in the Arizona legislature and then lets it die in committee and the feminists are furious at her. what the hell you know, if you've betrayed us, you're just doing this because you want a judgeship. Well, no, she did it because she knew she didn't have the votes on the floor. It wasn't gonna pass. So why break her pick? Um, so Why make a big show, kind of like a you know, cable TV show, be outraged? Why do that when you're gonna lose anyway? Instead, because she was majority leader, she went around and she changed every single law in the state of Arizona that discriminated against
0: women. Dozens of them.
1: You know, below the radar, not a big deal. Doing it locally,
0: getting it done. Now, a landmark issue that she faced throughout her term on the court was affirmative action. And it's an issue which uh, many Americans see as either black or white. And she saw it as gray. You say that she was an incrementalist and a minimalist. She didn't like it, but she saved it. And you conclude that This issue of affirmative action ultimately defined her role on the court. How so? Well, she was,
1: again, the fifth vote, Uh, you know, it's her vote, in her opinion, that is the law of the land here, the Grutter case, the University of Michigan law school upholding affirmative action. She participated in a number of these cases. Her mentor, uh, again, was Lewis Powell, who wrote the Bakke case. And her, you know, on the Supreme Court, generally speaking, there are liberals who believe in affirmative action no matter what, there are conservatives who are against using racial preference at all, think Constitution's Constitution is colorblind, and she was in between. Uh, her view, Powell's view, was case by case, quotas no, explicit numbers, bad idea, but some affirmative action, yes, case by case. In higher education, uh, when the Grutter case came up, uh, she was influenced by the facts. And the facts are that in law schools, if you don't have affirmative action, it certainly, at selective law schools, the percentage of African-Americans is gonna go down. There was a controlled experiment with this. In California, they passed a statewide referendum to get rid of racial preference, and the percentage of African-Americans at Berkeley and UCLA went down to about 1%. And her view of law schools was law schools are training grounds for leaders. One quarter of the U.S. Senate, one out of four U.S. senators are lawyers. And she thought that, you know, you can't have leadership institutions that don't look like America. You have to have affirmative action, at least some. And so, uh, she was also influenced by the briefs from former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In the military, they said the officer corps needs to look like America. In the military, we do affirmative action. It works. It's practicable. That influenced her. And so she is the fifth decisive vote and wrote the opinion for what is still the law of the land of allowing affirmative action for the sake of diversity, narrowly defined, needs to be some prior discrimination, you know, various contextual rules. But uh, yes, Uh, now that may also get overturned. Uh, I think maybe there are five votes now. To, to overturn that uh, we'll, we'll find out in the next couple of years in a couple of cases but that was very much her she personally she didn't she did not like identity politics she didn't like uh at Michigan law school and she was over there when she's looking at all these posters of all these ethnic groups and and, and racial groups and she said oh man is this really what what we're doing here uh and and she put a time limit in, in the in the grutter case she said 25-year limit on uh, I asked her about this about year fourteen, and she said, "Well, maybe I, I, I maybe I was wrong about the time." <clears throat> I was I was thinking about this because uh, how how this is such an existentially hard thing. And before she got on the court, Justice Powell said, "Well, let's have affirmative action now to get diversity, and then it can end." And uh, the question is when. And Thurgood Marshall looked at him and said, "A hundred years." Hundred years, You know, race in this country is, slavery is a, such an unbelievable evil, it's going to take a hundred years. And I think that Justice O'Connor is coming around to
0: that view herself. Now, there's a lot of great lines in the book, but maybe my favorite, they were have, uh, in uh, chambers discussing a, an important case on affirmative action. And Justice Scalia is going on and on and on about why affirmative action is such a bad thing. She said, oh, Nino, how do you think I got my job? <laughs> I'm going to close the program by giving my favorite anecdote from the book. Uh, as we've talked about, Evans talked about, it was the O'Connor court. She was the deciding fifth vote uh, over 300 times. 330 times. And so... There is a special group of lawyers in Washington, D.C., who do almost nothing except argue cases to the United States Supreme Court, so they know the justices inside and out in their preferences. So they realized in these close cases that there was really only one vote that was important, and that was O'Connor. They knew she was going to be the swing vote. And so after her best-selling memoir of growing up on the Lazy Bee Ranch came out, these very smart lawyers thought They had a really good idea, I'll give you the punchline, as to how they were going to appeal to Justice O'Connor. They frame
1: everything in terms of the lazy bee and ranching. She got real tired of that.
0: (laughs) Can you imagine all these ranch metaphors, and everybody knows exactly why we have them. Okay, let's first of all thank Evan for coming Evan Thomas is a great friend and a joy to interview. We've done many programs in the past, and what you've just heard was the most electric. I'll leave you with a quote from Sandra Day O'Connor herself. The secret to a happy life is work worth doing. Her quote sure works for me, because advancing the public's awareness of history through its most important writers is work worth doing. You can find Evan Thomas's book, First, Sandra Day O'Connor, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's currently number 10 on the New York Times bestseller list in nonfiction. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, as my late, great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. You got to get up there and swing. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.